You can make money the hard way becoming a bullfighter or save money the easy way with Xfinity Mobile. It sure beats making money as a human cannonball. Now through March 21st, learn how existing Xfinity customers can get a free line of unlimited intro for a year when they buy one unlimited line. That's hundreds of dollars in savings on your wireless bill. Visit XfinityMobile.com today. Restrictions apply. Xfinity Mobile requires Xfinity Internet. Reduced speeds after 20 gigabytes of usage per line. Data thresholds may vary. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. This episode of Clear and Vivid with Katie Couric is brought to you by our presenting sponsor, Discovery. For more than 30 years, Discovery's global networks have been helping hundreds of millions of viewers understand their lives, their communities, and the world around them. From science and nature to food and lifestyle, and now the world's biggest sporting events and greatest names in travel and documentary films. The Discovery family proudly informs, entertains, and powers the passions that drive our planet. You can make money the hard way becoming a bullfighter or save money the easy way with Xfinity Mobile. It sure beats making money as a human cannonball. Now through March 21st, learn how existing Xfinity customers can get a free line of unlimited intro for a year when they buy one unlimited line. That's hundreds of dollars in savings on your wireless bill. Visit XfinityMobile.com today. Restrictions apply. Xfinity Mobile requires Xfinity Internet. Reduced speeds after 20 gigabytes of usage per line. Data thresholds may vary. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. I think that, you know, it was really an effort for me to take a horrific, unbelievably painful and traumatic experience and try to do something positive with it. And, and I think I felt at the time that I had this bully pulpit. And I had a captive audience, at least for a few minutes in the morning. And if I could help people understand that this was one cancer that is highly preventable if it's detected early, that I could spare other families from going through what mine had gone through and Jay's had gone through and leaving my daughters without a father at six and two. Katie Couric's decision to allow her colonoscopy to be broadcast on television was just one highlight in an extraordinary career. As co-host of NBC's Today Show and later the first female anchor of a national nightly news program on CBS, her work has been distinguished by her ability to relate to her audience. 
Katie, th- this is such a great thing for me to, to have you on the show. Well, it's so exciting for me to be here because truly, I'm not just saying this because it's your show and I'm sitting across the table from you, but you're one of my favorite people on the planet. Oh, so I would you. I would do anything for you. So That's thanks sweet. for having thank me. You. Well, I have you in my book. I don't know if you have me in your book. What? I do, yeah, because the last book I wrote was all about communicating. And that, of all the things you've done in your life that have been really extraordinary, when you made your colonoscopy public, (laughs) that had such a big impression on the whole country and on me, too. Well, I think uh, getting up close and personal with my colon was... (laughs) Kind of going to be the first, maybe the first line of my obituary, I'm afraid. <laughs> no, but... I was thinking of that before. You must be so sick and tired of hearing about no, your colon. honestly, huh? I'm not because people come up to me still, Alan, and say, I got screened because of you. And, and, and I'm sure many people were saved. And they, some people say that as well. Mm. And, um, you know, it's an interesting phenomenon as someone who's kind of studied communication and has been in, and is a great communicator yourself and interested in I know how scientists distill complicated concepts I think that resonated because I had been through such a, a personal tragedy and I think in order for something to really seep in to permeate our psyches and to really have an impact and to change hearts and minds you do have to have that emotional connection. And, and I the, think the, coming on the heels of my husband's death. Yeah, that's that was the it tragedy. It was so powerful. How how long after your husband's death did you were you able to bring yourself to do that I public think it thing? Was, it was probably um I think it was just, you know, that's interesting. I think it was probably about six months afterwards. Boy, that, that's soon. But I felt such a— was, was it a moment of relief for you, or did, did you expunge some of your grief that way? I think that, you know, it was really an effort for me to take a, a horrific, unbelievably painful and traumatic experience and try to do something positive with it. And, and I think I felt at the time that I had this bully pulpit— And I had a captive audience, at least for a few minutes in the morning. And if I could help people understand that this was one cancer that is highly preventable if it's detected early, if you get proper screening, that I could spare other families uh, from going through what mine had gone through and Jay's had gone through and leaving my daughters without a father at six and two, you know, mm. that that I could somehow have an impact. And the University of Michigan did a study and found there was a 20% increase in colon cancer screenings after I did my thing. I know, because it's <laughs> in my book. Yeah, oh, right. <laughs> and uh, they call it the Couric effect, and which yeah, was very, very flattering, kind of weird to be so associated get, with that. How did you get to the decision to do that? Was it your idea? Did somebody come to you with the idea? Did you have to ponder for a while whether you wanted to be so personal about it? You know, um, it was my idea. I had learned so much, you know. There is nothing like fear and um, desperation to make you absorb everything you possibly can about a certain situation. And I almost became an MD during those nine months Jay was sick. You know, I was studying 
Lancet and JAMA and Cancer, all these periodicals. I stopped reading all these, you know, not garbage magazines, but less serious magazines. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I was learning about anti-angiogenesis, you know, cutting off the tumor's blood supply and monoclonal antibodies and targeted therapies and all these, like, scientific terms. And I had a really good friend named... Al Rapson, who was the deputy director of the National Cancer Institute, I would call him all the time to talk to him about clinical trials or if I read some research on something. So he started calling me Dr. Couric, which was hilarious. <laughs> but anyway, I guess I'm telling you this to say I gleaned so much from that horrific experience and learned so much. I felt like I needed to share it. You know, I needed to share it. And I said, to the executive producer at the Today Show at the time, Jeff Zucker, who also had had colon cancer, ironically, mm. in his 30s, I said, I really want to do this screening and I want to spread the word that people need to get checked for this disease. It's the number two cancer killer of men and women combined. And it's so prevalent. So um, that's that sort of was my decision. In the process of learning all about the medicine that applied, what's the word you brought up, anti-angio? Anti-angiogenesis. Anti-angiogenesis. That's a mouthful, isn't it? Yeah, but it feels good, doesn't it, to know you know what it means. Yeah. (laughs) But the vast majority of us don't have the time or the impetus to learn words like that, and yet we need to know what they mean. Yeah. I know you, you work on that. What do you think is the hardest thing about getting medicine and science to be understood by the rest of us who really need to know it? Yeah, I think a lot of people are confused and intimidated by science. Anything, you know, they they feel inadequate. So when they see complicated concepts that they don't really understand, I think they kind of almost shut down. And I think scientists, honestly, and this is why what you're doing is so fantastic, Alan, need to learn how to synthesize this information and explain it to lay people. And I think because that's what I've done my entire career, taken things and tried to make them Mm -hmm. understandable and relatable, I think it's also further complicated by all this information online that is not accurate. hard to know what's real and what isn't. I mean, the joke goes, remember what Abraham Lincoln said, you can't trust the internet. (laughs) I've never heard that joke. (laughs) But but it's true, you know, I think people get, uh, first of all, it's really scary if you have a cancer diagnosis to look it up online. And I know many doctors who say, do not go on the internet, do not go online. Um, but you and, can go straight to the scholarly articles. Right, you can go to scholarly articles. But then they're hard to, hard to understand for most lay people. Exactly. I mean, ideally, doctors would be able to take the time to really talk to their patients about yeah. their situations. Well, or, we, tra- we train a lot of physicians. Right, too, or, a, or a patient navigator. You know, yeah. there are a lot of, uh, you know, we started a center at New York Hospital, the Jay Monahan Center, after Jay died. And we wanted it to be comprehensive and one-stop shopping. And there are people who can help you with clinical trials, genetic testing, nutritional stuff. And the mandate is you have got to be nice to people. You know, you have got to be kind and nice from everyone who answers the phone to the nurse 
uh, to the you know physicians, to everyone on the staff. It's not that easy, I imagine, because there's a tremendous burnout rate among physicians and nurses. Yeah, people who did come into contact daily with death and dying. They're under tremendous pressure. So if they speak sharply or shortly to a patient, it's understandable. Or coldly, but, I or think. Or coldly, or just talking a foreign language of medicine. Right. It's, um, there are two, two people undergoing a lot of stress meeting at that. Oh, yes. At that juncture. And, and the, the people with the hard-to-understand language have the biggest responsibility to make it understood, and not just the language, but to read the other person's state of anxiety. Mm-hmm. What are they ready to hear? Don't you it's think? It's hard. Yeah, it's really it's hard, and I feel for physicians and nurses, and feel so um, proud and inspired by their commitment. But you know, I I can understand how difficult it is to deal with people who are in that heightened state of, as you said, anxiety and fear. Every day, my nephew, Ray, is an oncologist, my sister's mm. oldest son, and my sister, I think he went into oncology because his mom, Emily, and my sister died of pancreatic cancer when she was 54. And he and I had this long talk about how you help, how you help families and how you, you know, tell a 37-year-old father of two little kids that there's nothing more you can do for him. And he Ray said sometimes he sits in the room with them and just sits in with them. And I mean, I wish that I had had a chance to have a real conversation with Jay about death. Mm. Because we never did. You know, we never said, what if you don't make it? Because I just couldn't bring myself to even talk about the possibility, and I also felt like I was giving up or abandoning hope, and I didn't want him to give up either. So I just, I think that that as a society, we need to learn the words and the language to have these really difficult, painful conversations. As we've heard, Katie took a deep dive into science and medicine because of her husband's illness. And that made her a strong advocate for scientists to communicate better with the rest of us. That need came out starkly in a project Katie and I were both involved with, an extensive survey sponsored by 3M that explored people's attitude towards science and its role in our lives. It's called the uh, State of Science Index, and it's the second time they've done this. They did an extensive survey, 14,000 people, I think, in 14 countries, to kind of measure how people felt about science and scientists and, you know, if they were skeptical or did they respect science. And the findings were really, really interesting and in some cases, I think, pretty disturbing. What were to you the most disturbing things? Well, I've got some of the findings, actually, I brought with me. One in every three of us is a science skeptic, and overall skepticism towards science grew globally in the past year. Skepticism is up three percentage points. Uh, 35% of the population around the world say that if there was no science, their life would not be much different. 
35% Isn't that, that insane? If there were no science? 45%, nearly <clears throat> half people believe science that aligns with their personal beliefs. And they believe in science that aligns with their personal beliefs. Yeah, I, we were talking about another survey and another program that came up with that same finding, which, which was so interesting. It was, it showed that although you would think that the more knowledge people have about science, the more they would accept a finding, say, on global warming, when in fact they diverge. The more information they have, the more education they have about science, the more they dis- they diverge on conservative liberal lines. So why do you think that's because the Because of what you just said about belief. Mm-hmm. If belief trumps facts, which it does so often, then there's a serious problem because our lives are at stake if we don't pay attention to the facts. I know. It's so true. And I was just reading an article on the way over here that was in Newsweek about a um, a, a flat earth convention, flat earthers. They all got together in one place? They did, and a science, scientist went there. That's good because if they're in one place, they can, they can stay far away from the edge. <laughs> it's, it's safe. Well, a scientist went there and wrote this really interesting article about— Did he talk of, to them? Yeah, he did. And it said that people are less likely to change their mind because of data and more likely to change their mind because of a conversation with someone they trust. Yeah. And it speaks to not only diverging along partisan lines, but this lack of faith in facts, but also in expertise. I think uh, there was a book written a couple of years ago called The Death of Expertise mm. that, you know, people, uh, I think there's such class warfare going on and so mm. much class resentment and I think fueled by this tremendous tremendously problematic income inequality that people don't, they resent uh, academics, they resent people sometimes who have access to all this information. And I think it's exacerbated by the internet where everyone thinks they're an expert Mm. because they can Google something, get all the information, and ergo they are suddenly the instant experts. And it's all very, very concerning that people, you know, you saw it in Brexit, where uh, I think it was a, some labor official said, why should we trust the experts? <laughs> yeah, uh, right. uh, uh, I can give you a few reasons why you should trust the experts, because <laughs> yeah, uh, but... they happen to know a hell of a lot more than you do. But look at this problem you have. If people listen to those they trust— and there's more and more skepticism about science. It almost seems that no matter what language the scientists translate their findings into, if they're not going to be trusted, they're not going to be paid attention to. There seems to be something that needs to be done in the culture to make us more trusting of people with a lifetime of experience and learning. I think I agree. I mean, I think a couple of things that it's a real indictment of the education system in this country mm. that people don't respect uh, science more. Um, I think it's also speaks to this gravitation that some people have towards conspiracy theories, thinking that 9-11 isn't true. And by the way, the purveyors of those theories, like 
like Alex Jones, who had the audacity and the uh, mendacity, if that's the right word, to spread that Sandy Hook was a hoax. I was cruel. I mean, it's just repulsive. And so I think you have these alternate universes where people are fed garbage and then they start to be brainwashed and regurgitating said garbage. And it's, um, you know, it's really troubling, very, very troubling. I wonder if one of the problems is we have divided ourselves into camps. Totally. And I mean, I think that's a big— really seems to be a problem. I think it's a huge problem, and I think, honestly, the media at times, uh, you know, I think exploits it. But I just wonder what exactly the landscape would be like if if there wasn't someone as outrageous as President Trump in the Oval Office. It seems, though, that before the current president got elected— the seeds were planted. Yes, I think for that right. to be allowed. But I think this is effective. just. I think it, this is just like turbocharged it. You know, <laughs> don't you think? Yeah, I, 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 I think we had begun to get into tribalism, and my side has the facts, and yours doesn't, simply because it's my side. I think we've we've been progressing toward that for a long time. the The idea of having a conversation with somebody you don't agree with politically and not screaming at each other is kind of far-fetched now. Yeah. As I always say, civil discourse has become an oxymoron, but I also think you're correct in stating that it it predates the election of Donald Trump. I, I, I wonder if you do personally what I do, which is to look for people I don't agree with and try to engage them and just as a game, see how long we can talk civilly to each other. Because it's fun for those few minutes where you say, you know, that's actually a a good idea what you're driving at there, to find something in what they're saying that can actually enlighten me, change me a little bit for the better. I I do, you know, I try to talk to people who may not be in my circle Mm -hmm. and— you know, especially if I'm outside of New York City, and I'll ask about their lives and how they feel and, you know, what their concerns are and, you know, their impressions of situations. And when you do, I think you can, it's easier to find common ground. I think that's the problem. I think we've depersonalized everyone. You know, on social media, you can lash out at someone because all you see is an avatar, uh, you know, right. uh, a handle or whatever, and you kind of forget. I mean, I don't, by the way. I'm subjected <laughs> this, to, to this at times, but people forget, like, you're a human being with feelings and thoughts and family. But and that's, that, to me, is the essence of any communication. If you don't realize there's a person at the other end of what you're saying, even if you're facing them, never mind that all you see is an avatar, unless you regard them as an actual person, I don't see how you're going to be able to have any exchange of any kind that's meaningful. The good news is I think that's why, in my opinion, there's some good news in that, is when we wonder for one second how it's going to be taken, what we just wrote, and that's when we reach for an emoji. (laughs) That's true. So for one split second, we're saying, gee, I wonder if they'll take this the wrong way. So we put it in an emoji. And a friend of mine said that she overuses exclamation points 
To I make, do too. Yeah, I, now I've begun to do that too because it softens the blow. If you say, I, <laughs> I'll look into it, it's a period that sounds like um, I'm brushing you up. I'll look into it, exclamation point means what a good idea you had. I know when my assistant writes thanks and doesn't write an exclam- exclamation <laughs> point, I think, oh, she's mad or <laughs> this is kind of terse. And I yeah. overuse exclamation points I have forever because I also feel like it's it, it conveys enthusiasm yeah. and excitement and warmth. Right. To a conversation. Well, it, that is good news to me because that means there's still some flame flickering in us of wondering how the other person is doing while we're trying to communicate That's with That's a little them. sad, isn't it? Because of emojis and exclamation <laughs> points. But I guess it's better than nothing. <laughs> when we come back, Katie and I dig a little deeper into her commitment to make science relatable. Despite her own unsuccessful wrestling match with math when she was a child. You can make money the hard way becoming a bullfighter, or save money the easy way with Xfinity Mobile. It sure beats making money as a human cannonball. Now through March 21st, learn how existing Xfinity customers can get a free line of unlimited intro for a year when they buy one unlimited line. That's hundreds of dollars in savings on your wireless bill. Visit XfinityMobile.com today. Restrictions apply. Xfinity Mobile requires Xfinity Internet. Reduced speeds after 20 gigabytes of usage per line. Data thresholds may vary. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Katie Couric. So what do we do about increasing trust for scientists? I mean, these were very interesting findings. All these surveys are showing that on the one hand, there's a tremendous respect for science, right? There's there's, there's well over 80% uh, or higher uh, how people regard science as important, but there's still growing skepticism. You know, listen, as... As we become a more advanced society and as technology transforms every aspect of our life, our lives, I think it's where it's such an inflection point for curing disease, for understanding the world around us, because we've got data, we've got basic science, we've got the convergence of physicists and engineers and all kinds of experts and knowledgeable people working together. And I think there's never been quite as an ex- exciting a time in science, at least from the scientists I speak to. Mm-hmm. And so I think what you do, getting them to translate and communicate what they're doing and why they're excited about it and doing it when kids are little, you know, taking opportunities. I remember hearing one scientist uh, from 3M say, You know, when she's baking a cake with her little girl, they talk about the science Mm. and the chemical reactions and what's going on that, I mean, I I wouldn't know what to tell my kids. I'd be like, hey, you're mixing it and it's rising. (laughs) I don't know why. But, but, you know, you you use these little opportunities to talk about, you know, if if it's springtime, you talk about photosynthesis or, you know, all these opportunities to kind of make young people and children really turned on by science. I think that's so important, too. I I remember you told the story in an interview once about a five-year-old girl 
who had seen the movie. Oh, did, yeah. Did, 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 I'll it, get it wrong. You tell it. Okay. So this was, I did a series for National Geographic on big pressing social issues. I hope someone out there watched it. It was called America Inside Out. And one of them was on gender inequality in Hollywood and Silicon Valley. And interestingly enough, it predated the Me Too, Time's Up movement. I was working on it while all of that stuff was unfolding. And um, I interviewed the writer who wrote Hidden Figures. and Which was about the women who was did about the, com- the, the computing for astronauts. Right, the African-American women at, at NASA. And she said, and I've always been such a firm believer in this, that the images we see really help shape who we think we can be in the world and who we are and our, you know, the possibilities that exist. And she told the story about a little girl who's five walking with her mom, and they were walking down the street, and they saw three African-American women approach. And the little girl looked at her mom and said, Mommy, look, astronauts, (laughs) because of hidden figures. And uh, I think I've always, you know, that's one of the reasons that I, chose to anchor the CBS Evening News. A lot of it, I was motivated by thinking, when people see a woman, it's it's it, it's kind of a novelty on an evening newscast. This was before there were 80 million ways to get news and information. And I thought, people need to see a woman doing this. People need to see a minority doing this it job. It makes an impression that's lasting and deep and useful. We had a friend who was a concert pianist, and her 10-year-old, I think he was 10, maybe 8, was, um, he would hear her practice all day long, every day, at the piano. Yeah. And one day he came in very upset, because there was, he was watching television, and he said, Mom, there's something terrible, I don't, it's it's wrong, there's a man playing the piano. (laughs) That's so funny. Well, see, it's all about cultural conditioning, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. I remember when I, I went to the Galapagos one spring break, I took my daughters, and there was a woman there, and I was still anchoring the CBS News, and she came up to me and she said, I was so excited when you started anchoring the news on CBS. I picked my daughter up from school. I had her miss soccer practice. Oh. And we came home. No, don't say "oh." That was sweet. We, I'm we saying, came... I'm saying like that. I'm saying that's sweet. That's that was. What oh, that oh was. you're saying oh. I thought you were saying oh. No, no. <laughs> I, I need an emoji here. <laughs> give it, give it to me again. Do the... oh. Okay, that's better. But that's, anyway. that was a corny version. <laughs> Thank you. But it worked sincere. for me. Okay. <laughs> so anyway, she said, I, I picked her up. We went home. I made her dinner, and then I turned on the TV and I said. You know, Nancy, well, that's such an old-fashioned name. <laughs> Ashley, there's something really important happening. We have a woman anchoring the evening news, she said, and we watched you and we cheered you on, and then we never watched you again. It's <laughs> <laughs> was like, what? I go back to my original, uh. <laughs> Whoa. So rude, right? What kind of a story? I, I mean, what a buzzkill. I was like, wah, wah. <laughs> she, she felt she needed to tell you this? I don't get it. I don't get it either. People are strange. <laughs> Aren't they? I, it was such a heartwarming story, and I was so moved. And I was like, really? Are you serious? Did you just tell me that? 
<laughs> oh, brother. Well, <laughs> now you got me stuck. I, this, 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 <laughs> Where do you go from there, Alan? Where do you go from there? We've what, gotten you know, we've you had were, a very heavy, deep, and real conversation yeah, here no, on this I love podcast. It. That's what I love about this. We, we just have a conversation, and stuff comes out that, that wouldn't come out otherwise. Yeah. I heard you say something about your own daughter when she was about five or so, and she, and you didn't want to tell her you were terrible at math. Oh. Did you yes, actually? Yes, I didn't. I didn't you, tell her I was terrible at math, and you, but I was terrible at and math. And you didn't like math, Prob- probably for some of the reasons we've just been talking about. That I you, think, yes. You bought into the stereotype. I did. Remember when they had a talking Barbie that said, math is hard. <laughs> I remember reading about <laughs> And everyone about that. went so crazy. They made yeah. them take it off the market. Yeah, or yeah. they made them change the little recording. So you didn't, you didn't want to be the Barbie doll to your daughter. <laughs> no. So you you hid it from her that you didn't I like did. math? I did. I never I told her because, <laughs> honestly, I just really wanted them to be excited about math and science. So how and did that work out? I got a two out? instead of a one in first grade. And I'll never forget, I got off the bus at the top of our hill and I ran home crying the whole way. And I got home, this was, I was six. And I said to my mom, I got a two in math. And I think that damn teacher, even though I love Miss Lowry and she was a lovely teacher and sent me a handkerchief when I got married <laughs> but um, and came on the Today Show at one point, she really kind of, Run math for me. Should, can I blame she it on gave her? You two, yeah, well, she gave you a two, and she didn't give you any. She any didn't give me a help. one. I, I don't know, but it just sort of ruined me on math. Well, I, I never liked grades in the first place. Yeah, seemed, I know, especially to me as a first if, grader. If they, if they could have judged my curiosity and my interest in things, but I do think I was culturally conditioned to think that that. Math wasn't necessarily a subject that girls excelled in, you know? I mean, I was raised in the 60s. I was born in 1957, came of age, you know, in the 60s and 70s. And I think there were, there was still a lot of sort of stereotype thinking about certain subjects. I also didn't do that well in science. Miss Poland, um, I, what happened? I think— did she suspend me? Something happened in my... I think I got a D in science. and got kicked off the cheerleading <laughs> you know, squad. I, I also got kicked off because I was smoking in the bathroom, <laughs> but I was just holding someone else's cigarette. Oh, yeah, wink, right. wink. I, I heard that That's before. what I told my mom. Yeah. That I wish people could see this now. This is one that we ought to be on video because as you descended into your past life and your transgressions, you started wrapping the mic cord around your finger <laughs> like know. you were knitting. I'm a little nervous kind of just really sharing this with everyone. But getting back but this to is my— worse g- than your colonoscopy. <laughs> yeah, getting back to my girls, Carrie, my younger daughter, went to Stanford. And, I mean, talk about a mecca for— for people to understand tech and to excel in math and science. And both my girls did well in math and science, but they ended up majoring in English like their mother. But I said to Carrie, hey, you're at Stanford. Learn to code. Coding Mm -hmm. is so important no matter what you do. If you learn to code, I think it's going to be invaluable. And you're like at the coding mecca of the country. Did she? She said, I don't want to code, Mom. You learn to code. (laughs) This is a typical mother-daughter exchange. Why don't they develop an interest in what we've always wanted to do? I don't know, but I really thought it was good advice, but it was ignored. I'm sorry Well, my father wanted me to be a doctor. Really? Was your dad a doctor? No, he just wanted me to be one. (laughs) 
Didn't everybody want My their kid to be a actor. doctor he, when we were he, growing yeah, up? Yeah, but he was an actor, and I guess he aspired to something like that. Was and he a successful actor? Very. He was very famous around the world. He Robert Alda, he played the original Sky Masterson in Guys and Dolls. I should know this. No, How do it's, I not it's know this about you? Born, you. Sure. I know, but still, where did you grow up? I grew up all over the country because when I, when I was born, my father was in burlesque, and we took trains from one burlesque theater to oh another. Oh, my gosh. What a funny and life. And then when I was seven, he got a, a job at Warner Brothers and made a huge, hugely successful movie about George Gershwin, and he played George Gershwin. From from burlesque. Oh, you're kidding. Amazing. What was the name of that movie? Rhapsody in Blue. Oh, I've seen that movie. Well, then you've seen my father. Oh, my God. Yeah. That's so crazy. But he wanted me to be a doctor. and he, Did he I, think that life of an actor was just too Well, it's very capricious? hard. He, he knew how hard it was. You know, it's very hard. So he said, just do me a favor. Take a pre-med course in chemistry and just see if you like it. So I took a summer course where everybody was making up the course. They all had heard these terms before. I walked in. I didn't understand a word anybody was saying for two months. And then I had to take a final exam, in which I got a 10 out of 100. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) I thought you were going to tell me a perfect 10. Oh, It was a perfect 10. but. An imperfect 10. Oh, that's funny. the, The professor called me into his office and looked at the paper and looked up at me and said, why are you here? And he said, my father wants me to be a doctor. He put the paper down. <laughs> Let me go. Did he say that's that's unlikely to happen? No, he just looked so ashen-faced. I was afraid for his health. <laughs> but what's ironic is I really wish I had a better grasp of chemistry now. I've tried to teach myself because I'm so curious about it and so interested in it. Yeah. And why? why? Because it's the language that they speak when they talk about certain biological aspects of our our lives. And I, I want to understand them in their terms as much as possible, partly because I want to be able to help them translate. How can we make people know or spread the word about what you're doing? And how can we, I mean, how do you show these scientists talking about complicated things in an understandable way? How do people access that? Well, we, Do you notice I've taken over your podcast? No, I love it. It's good. <laughs> Could I be your guest sometime? <laughs> sure. You're right now. <laughs> well, you answer the question. It's my podcast. You answer the question. <laughs> I what don't I, know what the I, answer. What I like is I, this has been one of the easiest jobs for me because you ask your own questions. <laughs> This has been so terrific talking with you. We we have to make room in the studio for the next troop uh, coming in. Well, I love being with you, and uh, I respect how you've continued to get out in the world and do great things and well, you stay talk. engaged you, and active yeah, that's you and all over. spread your intelligence and curiosity and warmth around the world. And uh, I've covered the world with the slime of my amiability. <laughs> So Did before you just you go, come up with that? No, I stole it from somebody. It's, <laughs> that is very funny. It's a who good, it's a who good was line. he? He was a writer. 
Uh-huh. <laughs> and, and he was often a guest sitting on the couch on early talk shows. Oh, that's hilarious. Now, look, before you go, yes, we sir. do a seven quick questions. Oh, that, brother. That, you, <laughs> Please don't ask me what I would tell my 16-year-old self. Do you know everyone asks that question now? Really? It's become no so unoriginal. Yeah. Well, I want to pull my hair out every time someone asks me that. I'm like, seriously? <laughs> but go ahead. <laughs> well, that, we'll maybe get an eraser. Wait a minute. So some of these questions, we're, we're, we're experimenting on you. We're trying out a whole new set of oh, questions. Oh, Lord. Okay. Some of them we, we've come up with. Some have come from our listeners. And a couple are our favorites from before. Okay. So here's the first Do one. Do I have to and, answer them quickly? Well, if you can. Okay. And they're, they're all Is mostly about— Is this a lightning about, round? No, no, it doesn't have to be that fast. Okay. All here's right. the first one. What's the hardest thing you've ever tried to explain to anyone? Oh, gosh. Um, sex to my daughter. Okay, there you go. How a baby is comes about. You can explain that to me later when we're off the air. <laughs> okay, that's super creepy. <laughs> How do you handle a nosy person? Well, I'm usually pretty gracious, and I never say it's none of your business because I think that's super rude. I think I'm good at sort of... um changing the subject. So uh, I changed the subject. How do you tell someone that they have their facts wrong? I call them an ignorant slut. <laughs> <laughs> Remember that? What? Shana, you ignorant slut. Remember we used, they used to do a, a, a riff on Who, James J. Kilpatrick from? and Shana Alexander on like they had some counterpoint and Dan Aykroyd oh, was on. Oh. Remember, he'd I thought be you like, made the phrase up. I was no, giving you more no, credit no, than no, you no, deserved. No, 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 no. I, I probably wouldn't use that <laughs> that term. <laughs> um, you know, honestly, I do. I do. In all seriousness, I try to listen. Yeah. Uh, and I try to gently persuade, um, and I then change the subject if I get too frustrated. <laughs> so you don't. You don't say you're wrong. This is the fact. Well, I yeah, I do sometimes say uh, actually, you know what? You need to to read this and this is what it is and I will argue it, but some people the more you challenge them, the more they dig in their heels. So, I try to to do it to a certain extent and then I've I've been known to send articles or material to someone with whom I've had an argument to just say, "Hey, it might be helpful if you read this." Okay, next one. What's the strangest question anyone's ever asked you? Uh, pass. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Can I phone a friend? <laughs> <laughs> That's the strangest answer. Alan thinks answer. I'm super funny. I love this. You're such a good audience. <laughs> <laughs> well, you make me laugh. <laughs> okay. How do you stop a compulsive talker? Oh. Oh, gosh. That's hard uh, because you don't want to be rude. You just say, "Hey, hold on. Let me let me let me say a few things." Oh, okay. Okay. Number 6. How do you like to start up a real true conversation with someone who you don't know sitting next to you at a dinner party? Oh. That's a good question actually. Do you have a technique? Um, well, obviously you ask a lot of questions. You know, when people have social anxiety, yeah. I always tell them 
people love to talk about themselves, right? right? So you just ask a lot of questions. And it's interesting. My my niece lives in San Francisco, and obviously I live in New York. And she says the difference between New York and San, San Francisco. In New York, people say, what do you do? And in San Francisco, they say, what do you like to do? Oh, nice. I thought that was interesting. Yeah. So I'm going to start trying that out at a dinner party. Or usually I say something benign like, oh, how do you know? The host. How do right. you know? You know what brings you here, and what's and then your something relation? comes up that you can. Yeah, get. I can talk to anybody about anything. <laughs> <laughs> Last question: What gives you confidence? Uh, what gives me confidence? Well, of course, like all people, I have lots of insecurities. Um, but I guess age, in a way, has given me confidence, and. Uh, the confidence to be who I am and to not, I don't think I've ever really put on airs. That's never been my jam. But I think uh, getting older and more mature and having experienced so many things, I think that's a, a big confidence builder. What do you think? What gives you confidence? I think I notice I when I'm lacking in confidence about something, I get the biggest boost from remembering that I've done it before and I can do it again. Ah. Uh, or also I've done think, enough like this that I can handle it. I think also preparation makes me feel very confident. Mm. You know, if I'm not prepared for something, I don't like feel like I have a real grasp of the material. Mm -hmm. I feel very insecure and nervous. And when I really feel... Like, oh, I've got this, and I can take this conversation. I'm just talking about what I do for a living in any direction. Mm -hmm. Then I feel much more confident going into a situation. Yeah, that's an, and it's another flavor of uh, having done it before because you've explored it. Right. You're familiar with it. You feel comfortable with it. Right. There's nothing like that horrible feeling of stepping out on a window ledge 20 stories above the earth. Hey, I still have nightmares that I have, a like, a big math exam in college or I— have a physics exam, and I never went to the class. Do you have those dreams? You know, I have very elaborate dreams, but but th that <laughs> everybody has had that kind of anxiety. Oh, of I'm course. supposed to be on the other side of town, and it'd take me an hour to get there, and I can't get, and the traffic is holding right? me up, you know, right? Or that I that I have to be on air, and I haven't left my house yet, and you know, and yeah, the, I wonder what causes those anxiety dreams. Sheer madness. Sheer madness, Alan Alda. <laughs> Thank you so much for today. This, this was really so been, fun. Really been fun. I love being with you. Thanks so much for having me. Me too. Thank you for coming in. This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to Discovery for being our presenting sponsor this season. All the income from the ads you hear go to the Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. Just by listening to this podcast, you're contributing to the better communication of science. So thank you. For more information about the Alda Center, please visit aldacenter.org. Katie Couric is a news icon and a pioneer for billions of women around the world. She's also been a tremendous force for change throughout her career, and I'm, I'm always finding inspiration in her zest for life and her real curiosity about pretty much everything. Lately, Katie has reinvented herself as an entrepreneur, and she's once again breaking new ground with her new company, K2 
Katie Couric Media. You can sign up for her morning newsletter, Wake Up Call, and get access to all sorts of insightful feature stories and interviews on her website, katiecouric.com. On this episode, Katie and I talked about a project we did together along with 3M that was called the State of Science Index. You can find this online along with the publication we contributed to called The Scientists as Storytellers Guide. For more details, go to 3M.com and search for State of Science Index Survey. This episode was produced by Graham Chedd with help from our associate producer, Sarah Chase. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula. Our tech guru is Allison Costin. Our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Season 5 of Clear and Vivid will be launching on Tuesday, August 27th, with a really interesting conversation I had with Melinda Gates. Season 5 is shaping up to be one of my favorites. We've got some people who are changing the world, and we're also returning to a theme that's resonated with all of you, which is the relationship between improv and music, and our ability to feel, to understand, and to communicate with one another through more than just language. And we're adding in a dose of humor as we take a look at the art of comedy. So stay tuned for next week's special bonus feature, which is available Tuesday, August 20th. I can't wait to introduce you to Melinda Gates and the rest of our Season 5 guests. Thank you for listening and for sharing Clear and Vivid with your friends and family. Bye-bye, but not for long. members save on meeting up with friends save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups that's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier plus members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods plus when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship start a show together with your included paramount plus subscription walmart plus members save on this plus so much more start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com paramount plus a central plan only separate registration required see walmart plus terms and conditions